Whose promises do you always believe? We all know better than to believe every promise that we hear. And to live in the modern age is to have promises thrown at us constantly. Every advertisement that we encounter is some kind of a promise. We'll give you a new phone if you sign up for this two-year contract, right? There's a promise there. That promise is pretty explicit. They put their promise right there on the surface, although they, they hide all the strings that are attached. Other promises are more subtle. You see the car commercial with the good-looking guy and the wind blowing through his hair as he's weaving through the mountains in his sports car. Right? They're not making an explicit promise that you'll be handsome and have fun in the mountains with your sports car, but it's there, right? I think to be a modern person is to kind of build up a, a, a watchfulness and a cynicism about salesmen who are making you promises, right? If you, if you see some strange young men at your door, you assume that maybe they're Mormons, but more likely they're selling you solar panels, right, or pest control. We, we, we grow a sixth sense to know when somebody is selling us something. We know how to be cagey around such promises. Now, hopefully there are some people in your life who are not like the salesmen, that you do trust implicitly. You trust them because you know they've taken your good to heart. You know that they never knowingly make a promise to you that they don't intend to keep. As parents, we hope this is, this is the way our kids feel about us. We, know, we hope they, they know they can trust us. We hope that this trust is a, a crucial bedrock of our marriages. And we hope this trust is a part of our church experience, where we know that, that the people around us in church can be trusted and that our, our pastors are trustworthy. But of course, as soon as we bring up those relationships, we all know how those relationships built on trusts have been broken. Whether this is through firsthand experience or we've heard bad stories, we know of situations where Parents have not loved their kids, where spouses have been unfaithful to their promises, where even churches have broken trust. And so if we're searching for trustworthiness in our world, the only place to really turn is out of our world, to turn to God, who is perfectly trustworthy, who is the promise-keeping God. That's the only place we can look. In the scriptures, God is revealed as the promise-keeping God. We've already seen that in our scripture readings this morning. God made a promise to Abraham that he would have an offspring who would bless the nations. And, and Abraham was, was told by God to put that offspring at risk. And God provided a lamb in order to keep his promise. One pastor put it this way, that you can think of the whole Bible under two titles. The Old Testament as promises made, and the New Testament as promises made kept. Promises made and promises kept. That's the story of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's a story that Paul draws our attention to in the last half of Galatians chapter 3. Last week we heard Paul's argument against abandoning faith. He told the Galatians, you've started so well, why turn away from what saved you? And a major part of that argument was to look to Abraham and say, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And, and that's the same way we're all counted as righteous, by believing in God's promises to us in Christ. People are justified by their faith in the work of Christ. That argument 
from Abraham, which Paul began in verses 1 through 14, now continues in the last half of the chapter. But now Paul approaches Abraham from a different angle. Instead of looking at Abraham's faith, in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul begins to look at God's promise to Abraham. And that's where the focus goes. Now, when we look at Abraham here, we need to remember this is not just a random historical tangent that Paul takes because he's just he's like an, an Abraham aficionado, right? No, this is an important part of the story of Scripture. By looking at God's promise to Abraham, Paul says we're really looking at God's promise to us through Jesus Christ because Christ was the proper heir of Abraham's promise. So God's promise to Abraham ultimately becomes a promise to everyone who believes in Christ. And so here in these verses, we find a sustained call to faith, believe. It's a call to depend on the unchanging and free promises of God. It's a call to wait on God and to trust in his perfect plan. And it's a call to rejoice in the salvation that God has revealed in Jesus. Paul has told the Galatians not to abandon the gospel, and now he continues that argument by calling them to have ongoing faith in the promises of God. And so this morning, we're going to let Paul hold up to us the diamond of faith and kind of spin it around and help us to look at three aspects of faith in God's promises. These will be our three sermon points. First, Paul calls us to depend on God's unbreakable promises. Depend on God's unbreakable promises. Second, Paul calls us to trust in God's patient plan. Trust in God's patient plan. And finally, he'll call us to rejoice that salvation is now revealed in Christ. Rejoice that salvation is now revealed. Let's go ahead and read our text. Galatians 3, 15 through 26. We're stopping in a little bit of an odd place because we're going to kind of use verse 26 as a hinge towards next week, looking more fully at this doctrine of adoption. Let's read Galatians 3, verse 15. If you're using one of the Bibles we've given you, this starts on page 973. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of a transgression because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus 
You are all sons of God through faith. This is God's word. So the first call to faith we find is a call to depend upon God's unbreakable promises. In verses 15 through 18, Paul makes two major points about salvation. First is that salvation is based on God's free promise. And second, that God's promise cannot be broken or changed. It is God's free promise and God's unbreakable promise. So because of this, we can depend on God's unbreakable promise. We can rest assured that our salvation is secure because it rests on God's promise. Those are Paul's points, but how does he make them? How does he make his case for us? Well, he begins as good teachers often do. He gives an illustration in verse 15. He says that we know that when it comes to man-made covenants, after it's properly been ratified, it can't be amended or annulled. Now, we don't know whether there was a particular type of arrangement Paul had in mind, but his point is clear enough, right? There are certain kinds of covenants that can't be changed, that can't be broken. And God's covenant with Abraham was one of those. It was an unbreakable covenant, indestructible, not subject to amendment. It can't be changed. The covenant God made with Abraham has multiple aspects to it. So if we went back to Genesis, we could see some different things that God promises him. But one key aspect of this blessing to Abraham that Paul's been talking about is God's promise that Gentiles would be blessed through Abraham's seed or offspring. And the specific blessing that Paul has in mind is that Gentiles will be justified by faith in the way Abraham was. So just as Abraham was justified by faith, so will Gentiles be through this seed of Abraham. That's the promise Paul is talking about. And Paul makes it very clear in verse 16 that the offspring who makes this covenant possible is Christ. So it's not the children of Israel in general who bring this promise to fruition. It's not by becoming a member of the Jewish family that you receive this blessing. It's by faith in Christ. It's in the one son of Abraham, the singular seed, not the collective noun, Jesus Christ, that makes this promise of God a reality. So when sinners trust in Christ, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, whoever they are, they're justified, given eternal life. They receive the Holy Spirit. These are all the blessings of Abraham that Paul was talking about in our passage last week. So what Paul is doing is drawing a a bright and clear line from Abraham to Jesus. And then he says in verse 17 and 18 that the giving of the law through Moses that came 430 years later, that does not disrupt or smudge or erase that very clear line. The fact that the law came doesn't annul or abolish what God was doing and promising through Abraham. Let me read that, those verses 17 and 18 again. This is what I mean, Paul says. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Essentially, Paul is saying, if what these Jewish troublemakers are are saying is true, these teachers in Galatia, then it would mean that God had broken his promise to Abraham. But what they're saying is not true. 
He's saying no sinner can make themselves right with God by keeping the law. No sinner can earn eternal life. They can't deserve the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so keeping the law is not the way to receive these blessings. Rather, salvation is a gift of God. It comes through the promise of God. God gave the inheritance to Abraham by a promise. There's two words in that last clause of verse 18 that deserve our attention. They're hugely important. Gave and promise. God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Salvation is God's gift. And this is a gift that comes by way of God's word, his promise. So salvation is not like an employment contract. It's not God saying, if if you keep your nose clean and you read your Bible every day and you share the gospel three times a week, then I will give you these wages as a reward. That's, That's not a gift, right? That's not what God's promise of salvation is like. Rather, God's promise is most clearly seen, and the gift is most clearly seen, in Christ himself. In Christ, God says, you are sinful, but I will take my, your sin upon myself. You are unrighteous, but I am righteous, and I will credit you with my righteousness. You are dirty, and I'll make you clean if you trust in me. So God made promises to Abraham, and then God kept those promises through Christ. And that is why we can depend on God to save us by faith in Christ. We receive God's promised gift by faith. We often say here in our church that the whole Bible is about Jesus. Well, here in Galatians 3, Paul is showing us a specific way that that's true. God made promises to Abraham, a promise to count Abraham righteous by faith, and a promise to bless all the nations through Abraham or one of his descendants. And then God keeps that promise. And as we are reading the Old Testament, we're continually asking, well, could this descendant of Abraham, could this be the one who blesses the nations? And we see little hints of them doing that. So we come to Joseph at the end, or in the Exodus story, I mean, at the end of Genesis. He is the prince of Egypt, right? He, he blesses Egypt by his leadership and his wisdom with the grain. He prevents famine from wreaking havoc. He's a blessing to the nations. But then we know a Pharaoh arrives who forgets Joseph. His impact is real but limited by his death. Or we might think of the promise uh, that comes through Moses and Joshua. I mean, did God bless the nations in a way through them? We could probably say some ways he did. King David, King Solomon, King Hezekiah, others that were faithful men. Did God bless his people and in some measure the nations through them? We could find some ways that he did. But in all of these cases, their impact was limited. They were stained by sin and ultimately they die and are in some way forgotten. We might look at Isaiah or the prophet Daniel. Did they bless the nations? Well, they they certainly proclaim a kingdom that will come and and bless the nations. And Isaiah proclaims comfort and that the Lord's servant will serve the nations. But even they are pointing forward to something else, a time of, of greater blessing. So we read the Bible waiting for this descendant of Abraham, this seed who will bless the nations. And we ultimately find that it comes through Jesus. None of these other Israelites are the one. But through all these generations passing, God's promises doesn't ever falter. It's never broken. Because finally Jesus does come. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
and born of the Virgin Mary. Mary is one of Abraham's far-off granddaughters, right? And so is Joseph's far-off grandson. And Jesus would be the one who fulfills this promise. He's the one who gives God's gift of salvation to everyone who believes in him. Though he died, he rose again. And he lives now at God's right hand. Jesus' blessings don't diminish with time. Those that Jesus saves, he never loses. Through faith in Jesus comes eternal life. This is unlike any other descendant of Abraham that's ever been. Of course, the most remarkable thing about God keeping his promise is not just that there was a, a long time between the making it and the keeping it. The remarkable thing is the way God keeps his promise. Because in Jesus, God himself takes on flesh. God became a man in order to secure the promises that God made. Abraham and every other child of Abraham had been a sinner, but Jesus obeyed God perfectly. What's more, Jesus died for our sin, to pay for it. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He did what no one else could do for us. He satisfied the justice of God. The promise of God is secured by God himself. Do you see the way God keeps his promise? In Jesus, we see just how unbreakable God's promised salvation is. God provides for himself the one who will keep the promise. In Jesus, we also see how free God's promise is. Will God fail to save us? Well, did he fail to keep his promise to Abraham? No, he didn't. He kept it there with the lamb in the bush, and then he keeps it ultimately through Christ. Did Jesus fail to raise from the dead? No, he did not. He's alive. God's promise is unbreakable. It was unbreakable from Abraham to Jesus, and now it has been secured by the death of Jesus. And so it is unbreakable for us. Our, the God's promise to us is secured by Jesus, dying and risen and ascended and seated at God's right hand. God's promise to us is safe in heaven. It's not down here on earth where it's susceptible to rust and decay. Our promise is wrapped up with the risen and exalted Savior. And God's promise is free. It's not dependent on your obedience or my obedience. God secured the promise by Christ's own work. It was, it's God's free gift to us, but it was costly to Christ. It came at the cost of his own blood. God's promise is unbreakable, and it's free. Do you see how sure the promises of God are? And do you see how generous God is? Do you see the insanity of thinking that you could ever work your way into God's grace? The only righteous response to the freeness of God's gift is to believe, to have faith, to stretch out the hands of your soul and to receive what God offers. And if we've received it, we can't help but marvel at it. We can't completely explain it. We try to express this in some of our hymns. And can it be that I should gain? Why should it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Why should God send his only son? 
And why did he bind himself with promises to Abraham? Why? We can't explain it. It's only because of God's gracious love he offers this salvation to us and calls us to believe. We can be certain that God's promises to us in Christ are true because we can see the way he kept them to Abraham and because we know that Jesus is alive, risen, and seated at God's right hand. We can know that our God is the promise-keeping God. We see that God is the God who intervened in Isaac's case when Isaac was on the altar and God provided the lamb in the thicket. But yet God, God did not spare his only son. He gave him up for our sins. He, wrote, he rose him from the dead. You see that God's promise is sure and free. Because of this promise, those who receive it now have confidence to enter God's throne room because we are justified. We receive eternal life. We have a sure and certain hope for our future. If we trust in Christ, we know that we will be numbered among the righteous on the last day and we will be granted entry into God's presence. God calls us to depend upon his unbreakable promise in Christ. Now, if we believe in this promise, and if we believe in the faithfulness of God, it should also turn us into faithful people. It's because of this promise that we persevere. It's because of these promises that we encourage each other in the church to hold fast to the faith. It's because of these promises to us that we keep our word even when it causes us harm. Because of these promises, we resist slavery to sin and we minister the comfort of the gospel because of these secure and free promises, we offer the gospel to everyone. Come and taste and see. Come and rest your life on the God who makes unbreakable free promises. So that's the first call of faith. It's a call to depend upon God's unbreakable promises. In the first paragraph of our passage, Paul says that the law couldn't nullify the promise God gave to Abraham. And then this raises the question that he addresses. Well, why the law then? If, if it, was, it was this kind of difference than what he was doing with Abraham, why did he give it in the first place? Paul says that the law was given to imprison everything under sin until Christ should come. He says the law had a specific purpose in God's plan to prepare for the day when sinners could be saved by faith in Christ. And so in seeing this plan unfold, we are taught to trust in the Lord's patient plan. This is the second call to faith, a call to trust in the Lord's patient plan. We have to admit up front, if we're trying to follow Paul's argument here in these verses, there are some things that are really difficult to understand. For instance, I'm not sure what we're supposed to do with verse 20, about there being one mediator, but God is one, uh, and the commentators don't know what to do with it either. It probably refers to the fact that this is a covenant God makes by himself. It doesn't depend on anybody else. But what's clear here is that the system of the law of Moses was always, always intended to be a temporary system. It was given until Christ came. And second, it's clear that the purpose of the law is intended to condemn and expose sin. The first part of the, verse 19 makes both of these points. The law was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that's Christ, should come to whom the promise had been made. And then again in verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came, 
in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law was a temporary arrangement meant to expose the sinful state of humanity in order to prepare the way of the, for the message of justification by faith in Christ. We have to remember as we read this argument that Paul is always writing with these false teachers in mind. They were saying that the law, obeying the rituals of the law, was in some sense a means to justification. And so as Paul answers the question, why the law? He wants to do two things at once. He wants to, to kind of swat down what these false teachers are attempting to say. And he's saying they're trying to use the law to do something it wasn't intended to do. The law was not intended to make sinners justified in God's sight. He says if the law could have done that, there'd be no reason for Christ to have come. If, if God could have done that by giving a law, he would have given that kind of law. But he didn't. But he also wants to make sure that the Galatians understood that the law had a good purpose. It had a proper place. It's not contrary to the promise. Until Christ came, Paul says, the law was the guardian of God's people. If you're used to the KJV, you would know it's the schoolmaster. Uh, the Greek word looks like the word pedagogue. It, it probably means some sort of guardian of children that would have kind of kept them in line, make sure they you know, got to school on time, that kind of thing. It, but it pointed the God's people to their need for fellowship with God. And it prescribed the way they could approach God. The need, the need for repeated sacrifices was a reminder to them that their sin separated them from God, that they needed the blood of bulls and goats in order to maintain access to God because of their own impurity and sinfulness. We might think of the law like one of those ear-piercing fire alarms. Maybe you've experienced this in your school or your place of work during fire drill. I mean, they're so bad that you can't ignore them, right? They're piercing, and then every so often the voice comes on that says, you know, walk to the hallway and find the exit. The law is like that. A blaring, loud, persistent reminder to God's people that something is deeply wrong. That they were sinners. And that sin's power was so great and so enslaving that human effort could not overcome it or erase it. In case you're unclear about how the story goes, Israel was given the law, but they failed to keep the law. Instead of getting the rewards of the law, they earned the curses of the law. By the time of Christ, they still exist only because of God's extraordinary, abundant mercy. And even in their current state, though they are technically in the land, they're kind of under house arrest. They're in exile because the Romans control God's holy land. They are undergoing the curse of the law, even as Christ comes to them. So the law had a specific purpose for the people of Israel, but this purpose was not only relevant to people of Abraham, to Israelites. God meant for all nations to learn from Israel's example. Israel was kind of the chosen test case by God for all humanity to watch and learn from. By looking at Israel's inability to keep God's divinely inspired law, the whole world can see what Paul says in verse 22. The scriptures imprisoned everything under sin. The law of God gives a name to our rebellion. It turns our evil into transgression. It shows us that we're all enslaved to the power of sin, that we naturally serve ourselves and not the God who made us. When we come to grips with this reality, what the law does in naming our sin, 
we can only be amazed at God's patience. God had every right at every point along the way to bring Israel to a complete end. Human rebellion was rampant both within Israel and in the nations around Israel. It was God's patient plan to allow this time of rebellion and to condemn it under his law because by doing so, he was preparing a way for an atonement more powerful than any animal sacrifice could provide. He was showing them, you need a greater sacrifice and I am going to provide it through my son, Jesus Christ. The law was preparing them for that. That's what it was intended for. It was their temporary teacher until Christ came. And praise the Lord, Christ did come. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. By faith in Christ, sinners can be set free from our imprisonment to sin. Again, what we're describing here is yet another way that the Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in Christ. The Old Testament law prepared the way for Christ to come. It was a time of, of gradual revelation, a time of God's patient unfolding of his plan of salvation. One big application for us is that it teaches us to wait on God. That God's timing is perfect, but God's timing is God's. As we read in 2 Peter, today we are also tempted in our waiting to doubt God. To doubt that he will keep his promises to us. That Will Jesus come again? Will he really make all things new? Will he preserve me to that day? But again, Peter encourages us not to count the Lord as slow, but know that he is patient and that his patience is for the sake of our repentance. The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord is patient because the Lord is gracious. And so we wait on God's patient plan Peter says that our waiting should be marked by holiness and godliness. We are to wait by faith, preparing to meet our holy and gracious God, who always keeps his promises. And so, brothers and sisters, as we wait right now, this time of waiting is not wasted time. It's a time that we're meant to be learning we could say that those Old Testament Israelites, they were meant to learn through the repeated sacrifices of their need of the greater sacrifice. Well, that's not our lesson. But we do learn at the feet of Christ. We learn at the feet of the cross. At, we learn by the gospel. Our great lesson comes from God and his son Jesus, who was crucified and buried and rose again for our salvation. And so we trust that Christ is working for us and working in us and working on us, that he's praying for us, that he desires our holiness and our faith. We keep going because we know that we serve a God who is always working to accomplish his purpose in us. When you look at your life, where does it seem that God is absent or slow in his work? Where do you wonder, why is God not resolving this situation as quickly as I'd like him to do? Where is it that you're wondering, there's no justice? When, is it, when are these guilty people going to be punished? At those moments, we need to remember the, the patient plan of God. Remember how at the right time, he brought Christ to save. 
and think through your own life. Where has God been patient and merciful to you? Where did he spare you so that you could one day come to know Christ? We can look back and see, sometimes with the distance of time, how God used even great griefs and sorrows for our good. Consider how God desires to bring people to repentance through his patience and kindness. For others who never repent, God's patience will serve to show on the last day that they had every opportunity and that they are completely without excuse. How are you using this time of waiting? Are you learning at the foot of Christ's cross? Paul says in Ephesians that we are to learn Christ by putting off our old selves and by being renewed as those created in the likeness of God. As you wait for Jesus to return, are you learning Christ? Are you growing each day in confidence in God? Are you trusting that he's generous, that he is faithful, that he will complete the good work he began in you? God wants us to trust in his perfect plan. If you're here and you never trusted in Christ, are you aware of God's patience towards you? Teenagers, what about you? You're in your last few years, maybe living in your parents' house, you're thinking about going off to school maybe, living on your own. Do you see how God has been patient with you? Or maybe have you started to see your sin? Can you see the ways you're living for yourself? Maybe you can really relate to this idea of being imprisoned by sin. You know you should change, but you really struggle to. It seems like no matter how hard you try, you keep doing the same bad things over and over again. God's promise is for you too. If you trust in Christ and his work on the cross, that he took your place, you can be forgiven of your sins. You can be changed by God by trusting in Christ. God has been patient with you every day of your life. He's been patient with you to bring you into a place where you hear the gospel. And so he calls you to trust in him for salvation. If anyone here wants to talk more about what it means to trust Christ and to receive salvation by faith, one of the Christians here or one of the pastors would love to speak with you about that. Paul's teaching about the purpose of the law teaches us to trust in God's patient plan. The law imprisoned everything under sin until salvation by faith in Christ could be revealed. And that brings us to the final call to faith. Paul calls us to rejoice that salvation is now revealed in Christ. In the last few verses of our passage, we see a bunch of time markers. So verse 23, we see, Now before faith came, until the coming of, the faith, uh, coming of faith would be revealed. And verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The good news of the gospel presented here is that Christ has come. He's finally come after that long period of waiting. We live now at the end of the story, you might say. Now, in some ways, that sounds like it contradicts the previous point, because we said we're waiting for Christ to come back. So you might say we're, we're not at the very last page, but we're in the last chapter. We're in the bit of the story after the main conflict has been resolved, but before every detail has been wrapped up. So Jacob and I just finished reading all seven books of Harry Potter. And in the last chapter is when Harry Potter finally kills Voldemort, the bad guy. 
But then there's the epilogue after the last chapter where we get to see what Harry's life is like 19 years later. We're kind of in that 19 years later part. The bad guy has been defeated by Jesus, but we're still waiting for the final closing scene. We know that God's law had imprisoned everything under sin and death, but now Christ has come. He's given himself for sinners. He rose from the dead. And by faith in him, we can be free from sin. The heir came, and because of Christ's work, we all who receive Christ by faith, we become heirs of these same promises. Christ was our guardian until, uh, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So everyone who believes, every sinner who believes, is declared righteous by faith in God. If we track the story of how Paul is, is talking about Abraham and Christ, we see Christ functions in two ways. He's both the rightful heir to the promises of Abraham, so he inherited the promise in some way, but he's also the way that the promise is fulfilled. So Christ takes hold of the promise and then makes possible for everyone who believes to receive a share of the promise. Paul says in verse 22, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ is now given to those who believe. The promise God freely gave to Abraham, he now gives to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Everyone who's trapped in sin's prison can be freed by faith in Jesus. And this idea of being an heir is so important that it brings Paul to this big joyful conclusion in verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Christ, the heir of the promises, makes us sons if we trust in him. We become heirs too. We have a rightful claim on the blessings of Abraham. We note that Paul says sons and not children. This may sound like it's one of these weird patriarchal things that's meant to exclude women from the promise, but it's actually just the opposite. In the ancient cultures in which scripture was written, it, were, it was the sons who had the right to inherit. So Paul's proclamation here that all believers are called sons is a proclamation that all men and women are rightful heirs of the promise of God. And we're going to see that as one of Paul's implications, that we're, we're all one in Christ. So there's no longer slave or free, male or female. All Christians are rightful heirs. We're all sons of God in that sense. We all receive the promises equally. We're no longer excluded from God's promises. We are included by faith in Christ. In the text we looked at last week, Paul explained that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We are, we are included because Christ was excluded. By Christ's substitutionary death, he absorbed the penalty that we deserved and turned away God's wrath from us, and he made a way for us to become sons of God. This is why the late Anglican theologian J.I. Packer said that we can summarize the whole message of the New Testament with three words. Adoption through propitiation. Adoption through propitiation. In other words, we can become sons of God by faith in Jesus, absorbing the wrath of God for us. And this is why the Christian life is fundamentally joyful. Our God doesn't keep us at arm's length. He's not miserly with his love, just doling out a penny here and a penny there. 
And he's not capricious like the gods of ancient mythology. He doesn't keep us guessing. Is he going to be faithful today? What side of the bed did God wake up on? He's not like that. The one true God makes promises and he keeps them. The God of Scripture gives freely and abundantly to undeserving sinners. God the Son saves by coming and taking upon himself the burden of our sin. The Son makes us sons by dying in our place. We don't have to earn our way into this salvation. There's no way we can earn our way in. We simply receive it with joy. God promises and keeps his promises, and we believe him. Christ died, and we trust in his death. Christ the heir says, come, join me in the inheritance, and we come. This is why it's fair to ask each other, Christian, brother and sister, where is your joy in Christ? Now, to ask this question is not to say, if you're a Christian, you're always required to be upbeat and chipper. It's not to say that Christians are never sad or discouraged. In this world, there will be many reasons for sorrow. But with all those qualifications in mind, we should still answer the question, do I have joy in Christ? Do I rejoice to be called a son of God? Do I know that the promises of God are mine And do I rejoice in sharing this good news with others? Am I full of hope that my future is secure? My future will be marked by God's unending love. Paul says in another place that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. So if you're lacking this joy, take a fresh look at God's kindness to you in Christ. Remember how he saved you. Remember his generosity and the certainty of his promises to you. Look to the son who made you a son. Consider the incredible privilege of being able to pray as the Lord teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. Sing again the words that we sang earlier. Why should I gain from his reward? How deep the Father's love for us that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. The path to joy comes through knowing and remembering the truth of the gospel. So let us know it and remember it and remind each other of it. This call to faith here is a call to depend on God's promises. To rely on them because they're certain. To trust in the Lord's patient plan. To trust that God will always keep his promises and be patient in his grace. And finally, it's a call to rejoice in the salvation that's been revealed in Christ. By faith, we are heirs of all that Christ earned. The freeness and goodness and certainty of the gospel is itself an invitation to believe. And so what's keeping you from believing it? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will fill our eyes and our minds with the beauty of the gospel. Help us to know the freeness with which you offer us salvation. Help us to feel the certainty in your promises, that they cannot be broken or changed, that they are secured in Christ. We pray, Father, for your, for your joy to be in us, that we would know that salvation has been revealed to us and we are saved and we will be saved on the last day. We pray for your help to know that for ourselves 
and to minister that comfort to each other. In Jesus' name, amen.